Zechariah 5, 5 through 11. Let us listen attentively to God's word. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted out the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, and the basket will be sent there on its base. Let us pray. And with this amazing imagery, God, and this vision given to the prophet Zechariah, we see what seems to be somewhat confusing, Lord, about a basket, about a woman inside a basket, about wickedness of the woman inside the basket. What does this mean, Lord, and how is it relevant for us today? I pray you guide my lips so that we can understand, Lord, how, although you have spoken to Israel these over 2,000 years ago, in the situation where they found themselves, Lord, to the extent that we are in a similar situation, to the extent that we need to hear the same message, God, and so we are given this word of the Lord in this time and space and providence. May it help us, Lord, to stand firm and to be encouraged. In the name of the Lord we pray. Amen. You recall the purpose of the book of Zechariah to encourage the faint-hearted believers. They were in captivity for 70 years, surrounded by unbelief and rank paganism. Does that sound familiar? We're not quite there yet, as I mentioned this morning, but we seem to be on our way there. They came home to a broken country with a broken city and a broken temple. Smashed to pieces, like coming back to your hometown, to Denver or wherever you grew up and were raised and finding it destroyed by war. And left alone and unprotected, not built up, lapidated for 70 years. That's what they came home to. How encouraged would you be? How happy would you be? Be excited? You'd have some excitement, but you'd uh, certainly be sad and down in the pits. They had enemies around them, as we know, wishing to shut down their efforts. They had enemies within them, wishing to ignore the covenantal obligations and encourage them towards sin. Add to this all the obligations to rebuild the temple with a meager, with a meager crew. We're exactly a bustling city of millions of people. So God sends Zechariah to encourage them. He sends them many visions to capture their imagination of the grace and power of God. The encouragement is not all sunshine and rainbows, of course. Some of it is mixed with warnings, as we saw. But the vast majority so far has been encouragement. We see the warnings here in the prior verse, the displeasure God has towards thievery and perjury, for example. But in these verses, we have judgment, but it's an encouraging judgment, we shall see. Because it is not God the Father judging the people, but God judging the wickedness. This is wicked, and I'm going to send it out from among you, going away, right? You certainly see that. Whatever the woman is, whatever the storks, ladies are, whatever Shinar is, what you see is there's this basket of wickedness here, and now it's no more. It's going to be gone. God says, I'm going to send it away. That's the, the very minimal message you should get from this, is that God is protecting his people. He's purging the wicked from them by judging the wicked and casting it out. That's it in a nutshell. But I'm not done. 
The first point, the basket of wickedness weighed, verses 5 through 8. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. And he asks, what is it? Right, Verse 6, what is it? He's the questioning prophet, he seems to me. <laughs> I know the other prophets ask questions. This, this prophet seems to ask every other vision. What is this? What's going on here? What am I seeing? I think part of this is to make sure he knows what he's seeing, and he delivers the message of God correctly to God's people. He's not going to mess around and just be kind of sloppy about it. He wants to make sure what he has to say and needs to say that God's people would hear what God is telling them. Pastors should be careful in handling the word of God like Zechariah. Remember, although we are not prophets today, we have a similar function to prophets. One of the functions of the prophet is to foretell. You have foretelling, to tell of the future. I don't do that. You have a pastor who claims that, kick him out. Leave that church. They're not going to discipline him. And the, the prophets are supposed to foretell, to tell forth God's word and apply it to where they are in history. And that is certainly what we are called to do, what pastors are called to do in a similar matter here. To the extent that the text shows a prophet doing the work of a pastor, i.e. no miracles and no foretelling, foretelling, excuse me. To that extent, you can say, this is what a pastor should do. A pastor should be careful and say, what is this? What is this text? What's the purpose of this vision? What am I supposed to tell God's people here? They should inquire to know the mind of the Lord in any given text, to pay attention to the text, its history, its imagery, and its usage, and give it to God's people unashamedly. We should be careful with God's revelation, not just the pastors, but all of us. To be careful with God's revelation and not take away from it, nor add to it. But like Zechariah asked, what is this? What am I reading? What does it mean? What's the significance for me in here and now to whom I have responsibility to give my message to? And to meditate, of course, for each of us upon its truth and apply it to our lives and to those who are under our influence. That's what it means when he says, what is this? And he continues to say, it is a basket that is going forth. Uh, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. And he led a disc up and lifted it, and there was a woman sitting inside it. Now, it says here, it is a basket, and depending on your translation, um, it will tell you epha, or epa, depending on how you want to say it in English. It is a basket, it's a measuring, it's a common measurement. It's the most common measurement mentioned in the Old Testament. It's about two-thirds of a bushel, I looked up. And, of course, good old Americans were like, a what? <laughs> two-thirds of a what? And so I had to convert bushels to gallons. <laughs> it's about four gallons. Not very big. So it's a small woman or a big, a big ephah. It is a vision. So you have things out of proportion, things exaggerated, one direction or another. So the point of... The epa or the epa is not that it's literally two-thirds of wickedness or four gallons of wickedness. That's not, the, that's not the point. It's a metaphor, right? It's a picture, an imagery to point to something else. Not to be taken literally, as we say. Well, what does an epa do? What does a bushel or a gallon do? It measures an item. It measures the volume or the weight of an item, which therefore suggests God is measuring the wickedness, and finding it wanting, right? 
this basket. So it's not just a basket. That's why it's helpful. Like in my translation, it tells you in the footnote, oh, Hebrew ephah, that is a measuring. Not just any basket, but a specific type of basket for measuring and weighing, right? That's the emphasis here. God is weighing sin and finding it wanting. He's judging this woman. It is wickedness. I'm going to thrust it out. Here is a lead disc lifted up and this woman sitting inside the basket. God has contained the wickedness. He controls it. It does not control him. He is not responsible for the wickedness, to be sure. It is wickedness, not God. That's blasphemous. And, of course, he uses it for his own good, and for our good and his glory. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It is here. God is weighing it. He is controlling it. He has a, a disc, a lid on it, a heavy lid on, on top of the wickedness. And as we know, it will be cast out and lifted up and sent away from the land of Israel and God's people. That's what the imagery is about, regardless of how much we understand the details. That much is clear. So what is this woman? What does she represent? Well, wickedness. Okay, sure, yeah. That's not good. It's not a street against women as such. He's not saying women are wicked. That should be obvious. But again, it's, it is 2021, so maybe not so obvious in the American scene anymore. But for us it is. It doesn't mean it's a screed against women any more than when we see other visions of bad men. It's a screed against saying all men are bad, right? It's not the point. It is likely refers to the false worship of the pagans around Israel and in Israel. Remember, false religions gave women power that the feminists crave today. Remember what that power is? It's the power of femininity run amok. Put it that way. Say priestess. And by priestess, I don't mean, oh, it's a female pastor. We have that today, pastor. No, no. No, no, no. Oh, no, no. Not with these gods, brothers and sisters. These priestess are what, shall we say, ladies of the night. An obvious snare for Israeli male leadership. I think that's the most plausible explanation, uh, although it doesn't have to be. It could just be a, a general description of wickedness. We know false worship mentioned in Zechariah. It's mentioned amongst the prophets all the time. It's always a problem. It's a thorn in the side of Israel from day one. And Moses came down the mountain, and Israel's worshiping the golden calf. <laughs> this is the God who got you out of Egypt, it says. Astaroth, right? The goddess Astaroth. That's what was going on. That's probably the case here. This imagery of a wicked woman is echoed in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, we read, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of that great harlot who sits on many waters. Right? It's a woman, a wicked woman, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adored with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. 
a woman of wickedness. Here, the imagery of the great enemy of God, Babylon, the great whore, the shorthand for the world, probably Rome, depending on how you interpret Revelation. I'm not going to tell you what I think, but it could be Rome or something, but it's certainly a picture of everything outside God's kingdom and how they go after false gods and so-called gods, and they mix uh, the sanctity of the bed with worship and defilements and the like, with revelries, being drunk with wine, of course, the wine of fornication as well. God says, this is wickedness, but I have waited and found it wanting. It is under judgment. I have a lid on it. It's not getting out. It's not going to go on its own and spread throughout this land. I'm going to cast it out and preserve and protect my people by judging the enemies of my people. Again, even if it's not false worship, any and all wickedness is a violation of God's law, and God will deal with it by purging it from God's people, protecting us from it. The purpose of the imagery reminds us, and it remains even the same, even if we don't know the specifics of this wickedness, that God will judge it, he will take it out of the land and cast it out. The land of your heart, the land of the, of the church, the land of God's kingdom. Second point, the basket of wickedness judged, verses 9 through 11. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind on their wings, but they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. And I said, where are they carrying the basket? And he said, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. It's going up and away and far away. That's where it's going. To stork delivery, not to have children. I don't know where in the world that came from, the American imagination of storks bringing babies. That's certainly not the case here. In fact, you may forget this, the stork is an unclean animal in the Old Testament. So it's quite appropriate, unclean, an unclean imagery, an animal carries off the unclean, wicked woman in the basket. Far, far away. They have stork wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. And we have that in Leviticus 11.19 and Deuteronomy 14.18. And so it seems to me, given that connection, it's the emphasis upon the uncleanliness of the wicked woman in the basket who makes the basket so wicked and unclean that unclean things itself have to carry it up. Because angels aren't described as women with dark wings. So maybe they're not angels, they're other wicked things. He's casting all the wickedness, and the wicked themselves will pick up their wickedness and leave the land of God's people. Leave God's people, purify God's people. To build her a house, it says. And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar... That's not an uncommon way of speaking of a temple in the ancient Near East. Right? The, the house of the what? Oh, the house of the Lord. Right? The house of the Lord. The house of Shinar, the house of Babylon. It's a temple, and there she should be installed well away from the land of Judah. She's now in her own place, as one commentator points out. There's no place for her in the land where the temple of Yahweh is being built. Remember the context. I'm going to. Uh, support the king, God tells us in the prior chapters, 
I'm supporting the great priests of the day, and you will build the temple. I, I will strengthen your arm, and you will build the temple. Meanwhile, I'm going to purge the temple from this wickedness. And it's going back into the land of Shinar, which we'll find out immediately is Babylon. Genesis 10.10, Genesis 11.2, Isaiah 11.11, Daniel 1.2 talks about Shinar, clearly in the context of Babylon, the old name for it. And, of course, it's not literally Shinar, as though that's, we should never go visit that place today. It's still there. (laughs) At least some resemblance of it is still there. But it's what it represents, just like in Revelation, uh, the great whore, what it represents. Shinar represented the peak of paganism at the time. It had for many, many generations of the worship of false gods. Revelation 17, we continue to read, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. Babylon the great, Shinar. The land of Shinar. See that? So he is, God is encouraging his people through the vision given to Zechariah that this wicked way of worship will be cast out. And even if it's not a wicked way of worship, the wickedness of our lives is being purged, of the church is being purged. This is the process of living in this world before we get to heaven. It's a time of purging, isn't it? Judgment upon our sins and not us. That's the greatness of God's salvation for us. To what end? And he said to me to build a house, as I said, a temple as a house of their God. Reinforces the idea that the woman in the basket represents spiritual whoredom or false worship. To build a temple in Shinar or the house For it in the land of Shinar, that is, the temple is to reinforce the idea of false worship. All the wickedness, in other words, would be gathered and brought into one place. And as we know in Revelation, judged. Here the emphasis isn't on what's going to happen now that it's in the land of Shinar. The emphasis is, it's in the land of Shinar, it's not here. (laughs) It's far away. Back where it belongs, amongst the pagans. God's judgment. The house or the temple there in the land of Shinar represents in a negative form the paganness of the world, the unbelief of the world, and on the flip side, therefore, the purity of the Jerusalem temple of God's people. It gathers all the wickedness together into God's into Satan's kingdom, excuse me, away from God's kingdom. So you have this antithesis and separation. God wants his people pure. And God will do it himself. This is the sovereignty of God. He, he brings about the great antithesis, as we know from Genesis, when he brought the division between the seed of God and the seed of Satan, the seed of the woman, and Satan, his kingdom. That's the antithesis, the great divide between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, here represented in Shinar. And that antithesis, the great divide, is imposed by God himself because he is a pure God. And he loves his people, and he will exercise his power to purify us. He knows what Satan is up to, brothers and sisters. He will judge and is judging Satan's wickedness, and ultimately the land of Shinar, as we read in Revelation. This is why kingdoms fall and people die in this world, because there is judgment even now. The judgment upon the wicked is not just judgment upon themselves, but it's for our protection. 
This is why we believe in judgment, for one thing, that it's a good thing. It's for, our, it's for your protection, brothers and sisters, that God judges the sins, purges it from us, purges the sin from outside of us, against the enemies, against us, judgment against enemies that hate us, judgment against the enemies of the church, for our purification, for our protection, to protect us from negative peer pressure, from needless temptations. Judgment, as I said, is even happening now with kingdoms and empires that have fallen, people who live miserable, guilt-ridden consciences in their lives. And judgment will ultimately happen when Christ returns upon all those who do not repent. And the purging of our sins from among us, in us and around us, the temptation, the temptation of false worship, of the wickedness in the basket at the time of Israel, and today, whatever that may be, that tries to pressure us and undermine us, God is removing it from us. And it hurts, I know, at times. Other times, we never realize we had it. We see it, we're like, great, God, get rid of it. I don't want this anymore. Purge this wickedness from me. God is purging in our lives, the influences from around us, that's part of our sanctification. It's sovereign power of God. That's one thing you see here. God's in charge. God's telling you, this is what's going on. This is what I'm doing. I'm casting it away. I'm behind your sanctification. I'm behind your purification. Not just the temptations outside of us, the enemies outside of us, but also the sins within us. Any wickedness that we have is ruthlessly being exterminated. God does this through the hardships of life, to be sure. The means of grace or another way. Here, we don't know specifically how it's done. The emphasis is just that it is going to be done. And God is doing it, in fact. They're there, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. It's already happening in his day and age. God purifying and protecting his church through judgment. The judgment of the sins and the sins against us and those who wish to take us down. God takes purity seriously, brothers and sisters. And he's purifying us. Praise be to his name. We should take purity seriously. We should pray to God to remove more wickedness, take the wickedness, weigh it, find it wanting, destroy it, cast it out of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan, which will be devoured by flames of hell forever. Praise God for his judgments. In this case, a judgment against sin amongst us, perhaps within our own breast. He names it sin. He destroys it. He purifies it from us. We're saved in spite of those sins. And also those sins outside of us that tempt us, that wish to tear us down, to give us false worship. God judges that as well and takes it away from us. It will happen, brothers and sisters. It's a painful process now, but when Christ turns, if we die first, we will be thoroughly purified. And the sins will be cast away into the land of Shinar forever and ever. Praise God for his judgment, judgments, for the judgment against the enemies, for purifying us, and for our purity and his love for us. Let us pray. We thank you, God above. We bless you and praise your name. Lord, for this amazing imagery where we read of a wicked woman in a basket and how you have judged it, you've weighed it and found it wanting, God, and you cast it out from the land of your people, from the kingdom of God, from us, Lord, both individually and collectively. We thank you, God, for that process of sanctification. It's more negative. It's hard to see, God, because one person pointed out, Lord, it's not just wickedness in the abstract. It's a woman in a basket, God. There are wicked people, men and women alike, and you are going to judge them. Our God, we thank you that you've saved us. We pray that you would continue to purify us and purge sin from us. In your name alone we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.